Good morning. Welcome to another episode of This Marketing Thing. Finally getting some good weather here in Hong Kong. It's been absolutely terrible for the last week. But today I want to get into the uh, last chapter of the influence book. It's scarcity. It's probably the most seen weapon of influence that you see in business and marketing. So let's get into it. I'll see you on the other side. Hi, my name's Kyle Macker and I've been a pilot in the aviation industry for half my life. So you may be asking, why am I doing this marketing thing, right? Well, I'm so passionate about aviation. Flying a big jet, it's just awesome. There's nothing like it. However, I realized that being a pilot is nothing what it used to be, especially during COVID. If I wanted to live the life of my dreams on my terms, I was going to have to teach myself a new skill. So three years ago, I started my marketing journey. I dove deep into the marketing world. I dug into the books, psychology, persuasion, anything that would help with a person saying yes to a product or service. I love it. However, I have a big problem. It's all theoretical knowledge and I have no hands-on experience and I still have so many questions. The biggest thing that I know is if we want our businesses to stand out in a noisy marketplace, we have to become better marketers. The best marketer will always win. So follow me on my journey and hopefully along the way it can help you spark up a few ideas that I've learnt so you can implement in your business. So make sure you subscribe to my channel so you don't miss the latest episodes. And also if there's anything you want to know about, get in touch with me at thismarketingthing.com. So let's get into it. So this is it guys, this is the uh, last chapter of the Influence book. So over the past, you know, what five, six weeks, I've done these teaching of the whole book in different episodes, and I sort of wanted to do that selfishly a little bit for myself, so I've always got it on a record so I can go back and listen to various parts of the book without having to read it, and secondly, to show you guys as well, just because I think it's a really good uh, fundamental understanding to have when it comes to marketing and sales. So, But look, if you haven't got the book or haven't read it, it's a really good read. Um, it just goes it goes a lot deeper into what that I, than what I've done. It's, uh, it's a really fantastic book. So go and get yourself a copy if you haven't done so already. So scarcity. Have you ever brought something or gone to do something that you didn't even you know, particularly necessarily want or go to do, but you went and did it anyway because you knew in the future you might not be able to get it or there was a limited number available of that item or thing or action to do. I remember um, where my parents live, that they live in like sort of a, a wine region in Australia and there's, there's, there's countless wineries near where they live and... There's a winery right across the road. We'd never been, and we sort of never even had any aspirations to go. But one day they announced by a sign that they were closing down. And because it was going to become scarce, or we thought that we would ne- were never going to be able to do it again, we were like, oh, we've got to go for lunch. And so we did, even though we didn't really particularly want to go in the first place. But because we were never going to be able to do it again, it was, it was a scarce thing we were like, oh, we've got to go do it. The opportunity seemed way more valuable to us when its availability was limited. This is the foundation of scarcity. Now, the idea of losing something plays a major role in the human decision-making process. The thought of loss can often be way more powerful 
motivator than the thought of gaining something of equal value. For instance, like health insurance or car insurance, life insurance, any of those, they don't try and convince you to buy their products on the, what you stand to gain. It's about what you stand to lose. Another great example are collectors. They know the scarcity principle well. So, you know, baseball cards, stamps, coins, how rare or scarce an item is determines its value. Apparently there was a George Washington stamp that had three eyes that was really rare and it had a really high sort of perceived value. It was a really sought after item. Apparently double struck coins are really uh, quite rare as well. But there's a real irony here in that imperfections that would usually send them to the bin, if they bring the scarcity principle along with them, then it has a high perceived value of the, of the item. Now, insurers and collectors aren't the only ones that know about the scarcity principle. Anyone that's selling products knows about the scarcity principle, and we use it everywhere. We use it in our funnels, websites, face-to-face, over the phone, and we should. It it's definitely helps with making a sale. Now, he talks about two different techniques in the, in the book. First, he talks about the limited number technique, and that's when a certain product is in short supply. For example, a car salesman might say, there aren't any more of that large model left in the state, and when they're gone, that's it. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, but telling us there's a limited number of availability increases its attractiveness of the product. I mean, you even see this on Amazon. You know how when you're gonna buy and there might be you know, single digits left of that item, and you'll see it, three left, and you're like, oh, geez, I gotta get in. Now, there's a fantastic story in the book about selling a piece of merchandise at its scarcest point when it seems the product is no longer available. So this is a white goods store and they sell like washing machines, fridges, freezers, toasters, all that sort of thing. Now, how they do this is they discount the store 30 to 50% off all through the store, big yellow signs. So a couple walking past say, oh, I need a tote, we need a toaster. They look in, they see all the yellow signs, the discount. Let's go have a look. Now, not reading too much into this, but the ideal customer is going to be homeowners, so probably like couples, right? So the couple walks into the store, they go over to the toaster section, where they're looking at toasters, and they're starting to like a particular model. Now, what the salesperson will do here is they generally wait, and then they watch, they're sure that that's the model that they're pretty happy with, And then the salesman will go over and say, oh, that's a great toaster, that one. Really good model at a great price too. But the problem is I just sold that the last one 20 minutes ago to a couple like yourselves. Now, the customer is going to be disappointed. But what that does is it increases the attractiveness of the product. Now, this next part is the genius part. What he'll do is he'll wait. And typically, one of the customers asks is there still one out the back in the storeroom? Could you just maybe have a look? And he said, oh, look, it's possible. I can go have a look, but just so I understand, if I find one, you'll buy it at that price? Now, the customer says yes. Now, what that customer does here is makes a commitment. Now, as we saw in the previous chapter, Commitment and Consistency, the customer, everyone wants to seem to be consistent with the commitments that they make. So making that commitment to buy sort of locks him into the product. So anyway, 
the salesman goes to the storeroom, finds a product, obviously because he's got heaps of them, goes back to them, and now what actually happens? This may actually make the product seem less attractive to some customers, but because the customer has made that commitment, the business transaction has already progressed too far for him to renege. Isn't this genius? It's a fantastic story of salesmanship. And I mean, the people were going to buy a toaster anyway, so may as well be your toaster, right? Now, the second technique he talks about in the book, it's similar to the limited number technique. It's called the deadline tactic, and really they're of the same thing, but it's just offers that end if you leave, or you'll have to buy it at a higher price, or you won't be able to purchase it at all. I remember when I lived in Brisbane, um, we have a lot of door-to-door salesmen coming through that area, and I remember a guy selling me, trying to sell me pest control, and I remember him succinctly saying that if I leave now, you won't be able to find this offer anywhere else. It's it's off. You know, it's just available right now. And what it's designed to do, it's designed to keep the prospect, or me in that case, from taking the time to think over the deal and seeing the deal as really attractive, which makes me want it now because I'll I, I might have the risk of losing it. Now the scarcity principle, whether it's the limited number technique or the deadline tactic, gets its power from two main sources. Now one we already know, it's familiar to us, it's that the brain takes shortcuts and it doesn't want to send anything up to the neocortex to be analysed unless it absolutely has to. Because it would just rather use the lessons that we already know to make decisions. And the, le- the lesson that we already know in this situation is that things that are difficult to possess are usually better than those that are easy to possess. So by following that shortcut, the brain can just make the decision. Now, again, this, like in previous chapters, this works in 99% of the time. So this is why we use it in sales, because if we can make a deadline or a limited number, then it will make people think that it's got an increased attractiveness to our product. Now, the secondary source of power that scarcity principle draws from is As opportunities become less available, we lose freedoms, and we hate to lose freedoms that we already have. Now, this is called psychological reactance. So whenever a free choice is limited or threatened, we feel the need to retain that freedom, and we, we desire it even more than previously. So if we increase the scarcity or anything else that interferes with prior access to some item or product, we will react against the interference by wanting to possess the item even more than before. Now, psychological reactants can help us explain a huge amount of human behavior, from selling in markets like we've already seen, to young love, to disobedient children. So then lends the question, when does this first start? Well, scientists trace this back to two-year-olds, the terrible twos. I mean, a two-year-old resists any form of parental control. I mean, you give them a toy, they'll want another one. You want to give them a cuddle, they'll wiggle and squirm to get out of it, as every parent knows. Now, how they found this out, there was a Virginia-based study of two-year-old boys. And how they tested it was a mother would accompany their boys into a room where there was two equally attractive toys. Now, one toy was behind a plexiglass barrier and the other toy was beside the barrier. Now, for one group of boys, 
the plexiglass barrier was only a foot tall, so it didn't present an obstacle for them. The other group of boys, the plexiglass barrier was two foot tall, so it presented quite an obstacle for the, for the young boy. So researchers wanted to find out how quickly they would make contact with what toy. So the results were clear. When the boys went into the room with no real obstacle, the boys didn't showed no preference to either toy. But the second group, where there was a real obstacle by the plexiglass barrier, they were three times faster to touch the unobstructed toy than the toy that was just beside the barrier. So the two-year-olds were just showing the classic response of the limitation to their freedom. Now you notice this study doesn't include little girls at all. It doesn't even make mention of it. But at the back of the book, they do have a note. And they did do the study on little girls as well, but they did not show the same resistant response to the large barrier as did the boys. Now what they concluded is that, is that this does not seem to be that the girls don't oppose attempts to limit their freedoms, but instead it appears that they are primarily reactant to restrictions that come from other people rather than from physical barriers. And that was said by Brem in 1983. Now the reason for this is that boys are usually more visual than girls, but that's just me hypothesising. But it doesn't really matter. The question is why? And they think that it's because toddlers start to see themselves as independent. You know, they start to see themselves as an independent member of society and with that comes a concept of freedom. So they're simply exploring the length and width of their choices. They're, they're testing their boundaries and obviously the patience of their parents. But the next stage you see this is from, is from a teenager to an adult. You see rebellious teens. Teenagers have increasing roles in rights and duties and they focus less on the duties and more on the rights. A good example of this for me was when we were growing up. My mum, still to this day, says that boys are easier to raise than girls. And I wonder if it goes back to the study where girls don't like people restraint placing restrictions on them because my sister was definitely not going to be told what to do by any parent or teacher, that's for sure. And I mean, she's not like that anymore. She passed those teenage years. But when she was in those teenage years... It was all nothing until boys came along and nothing illustrates the backfiring of parental pressure on teen behavior than young love. Now, this is called the Romeo and Juliet effect. Now, in the movie or the book, whatever you've read or watched, the intensity of their love has always been a source of puzzlement and wonderment. And I mean, it's, it's, been, it's fiction, so I mean, I guess it's made up. But a romantic might say it's the perfect coupling of you know, perfect love. But someone with the understanding of psychological reactance might say that the parental control, and because remember that they weren't allowed to see each other, fueled the placement of barriers on their relationship. And we know what barriers do to people. Now, we can't say for sure because the story is fiction. But is it possible to answer this question with more certainty with modern day Romeo and Juliet? Do couples that have external pressure from parents commit more and fall more deeply in love than those without? Well, according to a Colorado study, that's exactly what happens. 140 couples took part in the study and they announced that there was parental interference in the relationship. And what they found was that when there was increased parental interference, the love experience intensified. 
And when the parental interference decreased, the love experience cooled. Now, this psychological reactance isn't just found in young people. There's another example in Dade County in Florida when they banned cleaning products containing phosphates. Now, there's a social study done to determine the social impact of the banning. And what they found, there was two parallel reactions. The first, people turned to smuggling. So people would drive to neighbouring counties. They would even fill up caravans full of this phosphate cleaning detergent. Some people even boasted a 20-year supply. Now, the second was more subtle and deliberate than the deliberate defiance of the hoarding of people wanting what they couldn't have. They came to see phosphate cleaners as better products than before, gentler, better on whites. They even believed that after the law passed that phosphate detergents poured better. Now, this response is typical of individuals who have lost an established freedom. When our freedom to have something or the item becomes less available, then we experience an increased desire for it. However, we rarely recognise that psychological reactance has caused us to want the item more. We don't even know about it. We just know that we want it. Now, in the case of Dade County residents, this newfound restriction was the reason that they felt the phosphate cleaners were better, even though they cleaned no better or poured any better than before. So what I've really tried to highlight over the last couple of examples is just how powerful psychological reactance is. And if we have an understanding of the inner workings of how the scarcity principle works, we can use it better than just some crappy countdown clock. We can actually use it to properly present scarcity and urgency in our products and we can sell more products. So just to recap this episode, so we've looked at the limited number technique, so a limited number of products available. We've looked at the deadline tactic, so product or service that won't be available after a time or date. And then we've examined where the scarcity principle draws its power from, so shortcuts in the brain, like all weapons of influence, and psychological reactants. Now there's one other area that we can make scarce, and that's information. We find information more persuasive if we think we can't get it elsewhere. Now, there's a really good story in the book. The author, Robert, had a friend who owned a beef importing company. And this guy was in his office one day talking about scarcity and the exclusivity of information. So the beef owner decided to do a study using his sales staff. Now, the customers were buyers for supermarkets or retail food outlets. And they were phoned as usual. Now, the first set of customers heard a standard sales presentation before asking for orders. The second set heard the standard sales presentation and info that the supply of imported beef was likely to be scarce over the coming months. And then thirdly, the customers heard a standard sales presentation that beef imported beef was likely to be scarce over the coming months and... They were told that the information was from an exclusive contact that the company had. So, just to recap, the third learnt not only was the beef would be limited, but news that they had received was also limited. It was like a scarcity double whammy. Now, the results become quickly apparent. The salespeople asked the owner to buy more beef because they were going to run out. Now, the first lot of 
customers that just heard the sales presentation bought their normal amount of beef. The second that heard the normal sales presentation plus that the beef was going to be scarce bought twice as much. But here's the real thing that was amazing. The third lot that heard the normal sales presentation, beef was going to be scarce and that the information was scarce as well, bought six times the amount of beef. I mean, that's crazy. And that's using scarcity in a real situation, not just some stupid countdown clocks. If you haven't already picked up, I hate countdown clocks because they're just stupid. Like everyone knows they're going to reset anyway. So I mean, I hate that, especially to automatic webinars or something. But that is the power of the scarcity principle if we use it properly and, and, and in a real situation like that. So in a nutshell, that's basically the guts of the scarcity principle. I will just leave you with one more thought on it. Now, we're still going through COVID-19 and the effects of it. And we've actually gone back into lockdown here in Hong Kong and in Melbourne, they've gone into a you know really strict lockdown there. But in the guts of it, in the COVID-19 lockdowns all around the world, I definitely know in Hong Kong and Australia, people bought toilet rolls like they were going out of fashion. It was crazy. And for one reason or another, people thought that toilet roll would be scarce. I've actually got an unreal photo of a whole apartment here in Hong Kong from floor to roof, chockers with toilet roll. It was out of control. There was even people fighting in supermarkets for toilet paper. It just highlights the importance of competition in the pursuit of a limited resource. Now, for one reason or another, these people thought that toilet roll would become scarce and they wanted it most when they were in competition for it. Now, this is more than just ordinary social proof like I did in a previous chapter on the book. It's direct competition with those people for it. The feeling of being in competition with other people who thought there may be a limited resource became a powerful motivator for human behavior. Now, there's a really good example in the book. Robert's brother, Richard, to pay his way through university, sold secondhand cars. Now, he didn't do this in a car yard, but what he would do is he would just buy a secondhand car and then he would sell it privately at a higher price once he'd washed it and gave it a polish. Now, to do this, he had to be able to do three things. He had to know what the car was worth. And then secondly, he had to be able to write a good ad. And then thirdly, he used the scarcity principle. So if six people called to schedule an appointment to see the car, he would schedule them all at the same time. So say at 2 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. This is genius because it paid the, paved the way for competition of a limited resource. So the first buyer would rock up and he'd point out blemishes and marks and, and sort of ask if the negotiating if he was negotiable on the price and but that psychology would all change when the second buyer would rock up because the car suddenly became a limited resource. Now usually the first prospect would sort of assert, well it's my right, I was here first. And if he didn't, Rob would go over to the second prospect and say, oh, look, if you don't mind just waiting on the other side of the driveway first, um, this fellow was here first, I'll show it to him. And if he doesn't want it, then I'll show it to you. Now, Richard would say that it was possible to see the agitation grow on the face of the first prospect because 
now his assessment had become now or never. It was not just some leisurely, just let's just go have a look at a car. If, if, if he didn't decide to make it a decision now, it was going to be gone. So Richard said if the number one prospect failed to buy or was a little bit umming and ahhing, number two prospect was ready to pounce. But what Richard said, once the third prospect rocked up, it was too much to bear for the first prospect and he just gave Richard the asking price. Or if that didn't work out, the second guy just bought the car so he didn't have to contend with the third guy. So what this goes to show, whether it's toilet rolls or a car, if this competition for a limited resource, it can be a really powerful human motivator. So anyway, guys, that's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the book. Um, it's a bit of a shame, actually, because I've really enjoyed teaching the, uh, the book to you guys. And uh, I must say, I've got a really much more deep understanding of the book. And I can, um, you know, look out and see a lot of examples of human behavior in this book. It's, it's quite amazing. And as I said at the start of the episode, if you haven't read this book, I really suggest that you do. It's an absolute goldmine of information, um, especially if you're in sales and marketing. But I know a lot of you guys don't get the chance to read books because it can be time consuming. But what I'll do is I'm going to put together the, some of the notes that I've accumulated and I'll put them in a PDF form and I'll let you know when I'm finished them, when you, where you guys can get them. So look guys, that's the end of it. Take care, enjoy, and I'll see you next time. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to get a hold of me, I'd love to hear from you at thismarketingthing.com. Until next time, see you later.